Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Manami Guha, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Professor Paul Deland about his book, The Culture of Male Beauty in Britain, from the first photographs to David Beckham, published by Chicago University Press in 2021. Currently, Professor Deland serves as the chair of the history department at the University of Vermont. Other than his recent book, The Culture of Male Beauty in Britain, that is the topic of our discussion today, he is also the author of Oxbridge Men, British Masculinity and the Undergraduate Experience, 1850-1920, published by Indiana University Press in 2005. He has, he has also authored many articles on a wide range of topics on beauty, homosexuality, hygiene, and British masculinities. You can learn more about the notorious side of London, including Jack the Ripper, by accessing his course, Notorious London, by visiting the Great Courses website. He also serves as the chief reader for the AP European History Program. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, the first question that I wanted to ask you is what motivated you to research and write uh, cultures of male beauty? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a bit of a story there in the sense that when I was researching the Oxbridge Men book, I kept running. I mean, I ran across the usual sorts of things, the advertisements for clothing and, and men's hairdressing uh, grooming kinds of services, those sorts of things. But what really interested me in some of the student publications that I looked at for that particular study were the numerous contests that students hosted, sometimes tongue-in-cheek, sometimes serious, um, to determine who the, the handsomest man in Oxford or Cambridge was. And they um, would go on at great length about these uh, sort of they weren't quite beauty contests. They were, I think, in some ways, popularity contests. But people would weigh in on who they thought was most handsome, and then they would publish the results in student magazines and newspapers. And I was kind of intrigued by this notion that um, these young men, um, some same-sex desiring, some not, um, would be weighing in on each other's sort of physical appeal. And uh, it struck me as sort of odd, and it was something I made note of when I was finishing the book, and I didn't really say anything or much about it in the book. I did talk a little bit about sort of undergraduate celebrities and thinking about the ways in which students kind of elevated certain types of students over others. So I had that information in my sort of reservoir. I had it in, in on file. And as I was finishing Oxbridge Men, and as I was starting to contemplate a new project, I was taking a walk in London one day with a good friend of mine who happens to be an early modern historian. And we just got to talking and we started looking at statues. And I think we were in Hyde Park and we were looking at some of the war memorials. And 
sort of talking about the representations of men in those statues. And this friend of mine said, you know, you really, you really should contemplate writing a book about male beauty. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting idea. Um, I don't know how I would do it, but let me think about it. And that's really what sort of prompted me and got me started. So I spent some time um, that summer even just kind of looking through the catalog in the British Library and seeing what I could come up with. And um, the initial findings were <clears throat> beauty manuals from the 19th century and the 20th century. And I was surprised in looking at those, the degree to which some of them were, in fact, directed at men and they weren't an exclusively kind of female audience. Um, and some were explicitly for men. Um, many of them were sort of a, a, a kind of uh, co-ed <laughs> experience, right? So they were talking about both men and women. Um, and then some, of course, were, were directed exclusively at women. Um, so once I started to realize that there was a body of potential material out there, I kind of left um, that particular research trip, went back or came back um, to North America. Um, at that point, I was in Vermont and I started to think about how I might kind of pursue this further. And, um, and that's where the project really started. Um, <clears throat> I was motivated, I think, um, just as one final point, I was really motivated by the notion that I had been grappling with as I was thinking about masculinity in the Oxford and Cambridge settings, where I, I emphasized, um, I think, a kind of anthropological approach where I was thinking a lot more about social ritual and um, the progression that men make through various stages of life. And I realized that what I neglected was something that I knew was important, which was the aesthetic dimensions of, of gender. And um, I think that's ultimately what drives the book is to sort of think about aesthetics, the relationship between aesthetics, gender, bodies, lived experience, and then this whole set of cultural artifacts and cultural ideas that circulate around beauty. Well, that's so interesting. And as historians, it's so interesting that you go into the archive not expecting to find these small nuggets of information. And before you know it, it can all kind of weave together and create this whole new book and research. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, no, I, I think that was one of the things that was so interesting about this project is that it came together very organically. And um, different different findings in libraries and archives different bits of advice. And of course, other historians were indispensable in um, helping me to discover where sources might exist. Um, and it was sort of following those leads that made it both a fun project, but also a challenging project. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, so now to kind of go back to, uh, you know, to locating the book and what you talk about in the book is why did you decide to pick between 18th and 20th centuries through which to gauge male attractiveness quotient? And how would you then, the second part to the question is, how would you then relate how this masculinity or these ideas of masculinities, where do you see it fitting into the between, like, between the 18th and the 20th century um, British culture? Yeah, no, that's a really good question and a big question. Um, right. I think um, there are a couple of, of things that I would say. The chronological spread and focus of the book really comes from a couple of different places. Um, the work that was probably closest to mine um, before I wrote this book was the work of, of uh, the European historian George Mossy, who had written a book called The Image of Man in oh, sometime in the 1990s. Um, in which he sort of talks more about the symbolic importance of the male body and masculine beauty. I, re I took very seriously his, his, his assertion that the enlightenment and the growing emphasis on the individual um, resulted in a fundamental shift in how people understood their physical selves, their bodies, their physical appearance, and that emphasis on, on the development and the cultivation of the individual that isn't absent prior to the Enlightenment, of course, but takes on new meanings after the 18th century, that that sort of um, offered a rationale or a justification for why the book focuses on the periods of really the 19th, from the late 18th century, um, right up through the present. Um, the other thing that I, I realized in writing this book was that 
one has to grapple with the fundamental transformation in visual culture that occurs over the span of the 19th and 20th centuries and the impact that that has on how people understand um, their appearance, how they present themselves and how their appearance is recorded. So things like the intervention of photography, the rise of the illustrated press, um, the emergence in the 20th century of film, uh, the growth of an advertising industry that, you know, from the late 19th century on starts to resemble something we're familiar with now. All of those things were factors that led me to think that there was something unique about this period. The other thing that guided me was, um, you know, a growing sense in reading the materials that I read for this book, that um, as Britain's capitalist economy becomes more sophisticated, there's a clear connection between uh, one's performance in that capitalist economy and um, and appearance and how one assesses people on the basis of their appearance. So there's almost the kind of commodification of beauty that occurs both in terms of thinking about the value of the individual and thinking about the growth of a, a, of a consumer culture that focuses on these body-oriented goods, which are so central to the book. In terms of thinking about the relationship between what I examine in the book and sort of trends and ideas about masculinity over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. I think there are um, a couple of things that sort of are interesting points of intersection. Um, and one is, I think, um, a thing that really uh, concerned me in the Oxbridge Men book and concerns me in this book is the growing celebration of the athletic body and um, the role of musculature and, and the development of muscles as a marker, not only of strength uh, and of manliness, but of attraction or attractiveness. And I think that that became a very important thing. So the growth of athleticism, the growth of sport, and the ways in which that influences how people understand um, the place of the male body and the celebration of the male body in British culture, that kind of drives a lot of what I look at in the book. And I look at the ebb and flow of those ideas. And so, you know, there are times when muscularity is more important than at others. And, um, and I think it's really interesting to chart that the same as there's, there are times when hairlessness is more important than other times, right? So we're living through a relatively hairy moment at the, at, at the, at this time where, men are cultivating beards. And I think that was exacerbated by COVID. Um, uh, but that trend, that kind of ebb and flow across um, uh, beardedness, those kinds of things exist. But then there are other things that emerge. So, you know, I talked before about capitalism and um, the growing sense that occupational success was connected to physical appearance. I think that's, that's a feature of, of not only the visual economy of the 19th and 20th centuries, but also um, the realities of how one um, assesses one's ability to function in that economy. So that's that's very important. And then, of course, the you know in the in the 20th century, the impact of the First and Second World Wars and understanding the ways in which martial masculinity are kind of invented and reinvented, and then utilized to understand appealing, particularly appealing. Um, uh, masculine types when, with regard to appearance, with regard to physical appearance. And then a big part of the book, um, as you as you probably know, is um, from reading it, obviously, is thinking about the, the ways in which um, the emergence of same-sex desiring cultures or same-sex desiring men in the public realm and then of same-sex desiring cultures, the way that has an impact on the celebration of the male face and the male body in, in Britain. And, and that's a big part of the book, sort of thinking about those developments from the late 19th century right up to the present. Wow. So this actually ties into my next question, which is, you know, as you were talking about the ebb and flow, right? So between 18th and 20th centuries, you see male attractiveness being defined in different ways, whether it's through muscularity or through the, you know, or through having a hairlessness, you know, uh, promoting the idea of either hairlessness 
or you know more hair or you have this martial masculinity so if you had to kind of and i i'm not sure if this is a if this is a question that can be answered but i'm hoping you can is how much do you see the culture of photography um influencing or did, did was photography say as an industry influencing these ma- these masculine trends of beauty or was it the other way around is it that how the men were portraying themselves is what photography was then depicting yeah that's a really good question i think that photography is so central to this overall project. And I think that relationship that you were just articulating of, you know, sort of the which comes first, the chicken or the egg question is a really good one. Um, And I think when you're thinking about standards of attractiveness, um, they, they, the, the, the technology and the emergence of beauty standards kind of they function symbiotically, I think. Um, but I would, I would argue that what happens in the 19th century is that photographers, and I also say this about popular physiognomy in the 19th century, that photographers, because of their desire to actually achieve pleasing results, begin to articulate what traits are appealing and attractive and how those traits might be showcased most effectively in a photographic studio. And as a result, those standards begin to enter the popular consciousness through, you know, a range of things. Um, There are huge, huge numbers of discussions of photography in the 19th century in the popular press. There are photographic journals that are quite specific to Um, practitioners, but that are read broadly. There's a growing sense that photographers have a new way of contributing to the artistic world um, that is is different from what painters were doing. And there's a lot of contention around that, right? So there's a lot of tension around that. So I think photographers actually help to really set the standards, but of course they're picking up off of, um, or picking up on, I should say, um, what uh, standards of dress are popular at the time, what um, uh, forms of what poses are popular at the time. So, you know, um, it's very common in 19th century portraiture to see men using props. And sometimes those props are connected to, you know, athletic life. Sometimes there are things as simple as a walking stick. Um, sometimes it has to do with chairs. Um but all of those sort of accoutrement were things that appeared in photos, but that were popular in society at that time. Um, so I think there's this sort of interesting symbiosis, and it's hard to, to say with precision, um, which comes first. I think when we get into the 20th century, um, there's a, you know, as we move from the 19th to the 20th century, the popularization of photography and the ability of people to take snapshots and to take photos on their own um, means that this process gets democratized, but it also means that the the number of images just proliferate really, really dramatically. So you just have a huge range of photographic evidence that you can draw on. And photographers continue to define standards, but those standards will also reflect exactly what's going on in, in, in British society at that moment in time. Wow. Okay. So, so the two of them were kind of informing and influencing each other. So, um, so to kind of now think about if photography and the masculine sense of beauty were informing each other, how much were they taking into account or uh, how much was the female sense of what female beauty is? You know, a certain female vision of this is what a Victorian, if we're talking about late 18th, early 19th century, how much was that part of the conversation that if this is what the female body looks like, then we have to juxtapose the male body in almost opposable terms, but not exactly? Mm-hmm. I think with regard to the relationship between female standards and male standards, um, 
I think there are a couple of things that are interesting there. Um, the process of producing photographic portraits in the 19th century was similar for men and women um, in the sense that it could be, especially in the early phases of photography, quite complicated and quite painstaking because you would have to spend quite a bit of time in the portrait studio. This wasn't a quick snapshot. Um, but the poses were quite different. Um, uh, with some women were standing, and I think it's, I think you, you can, um, it's hard to generalize because there are just a huge range of, of photographs from this period. Um, but there does tend to be a, a greater emphasis on men of action, I think, in, photo, in photographs and this notion of, of men um, doing something um, as a means of capturing them as dynamic individuals. Photographers, however, I think um, also kind of focus on things like the kinds of colors and dress that men and women would wear. And that could vary a bit um, so that men were expected to wear relatively plain suiting, although that's not always the case. So if you look at photographs of undergraduates at Oxford and Cambridge in the late 19th century, some of them could be quite flamboyant in their dress with sort of checked uh, plaids and their suits and those kinds of things. Um, I think that the other, the other difference is that I think the rise of photography leads to um, a, a kind of, and this is one of the points in the book, is that men become objects of fascination um, and objects of, of desire. Um, and again, it's not to say it didn't exist in earlier periods, but, but there's a, a, almost a way in which men are beginning to, in this period, experience similar kinds of um, gazes that, that women are used to experiencing. And I think that grows over the course of, of the 19th and into the 20th centuries. Um, so I think I think what happens with photography is that that men are objects of scrutiny um, in a way that they perhaps weren't to quite the same degree prior to the rise of photography. And I always hesitate with that because there will invariably be an early modernist or medievalist who will say, but what about this? But I do think there's something very unique about the, the 19th and 20th centuries that um, in terms of this proliferation of visual culture that changes the way men operate within it. Um, and the way they're being viewed. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Which, again, it, it was so interesting to me because I'd never thought about how how the man can become the object of scrutiny. And this brings me to my next question is I was so completely, you know, fascinated and taken in by like the, you know, the descriptions of features like eyelids. Um, and, you know, I, I, a quote from your book I found so interesting, and I'm quoting you here, emphasize precise description, careful delineation, and qualitative assessment. So, um, so just for the benefit, and because it's such a fascinating topic, could you like talk us through what that process looked like? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think um, much of the, that, the ability, so, so one of the arguments that I make in the book, excuse me, one of the arguments I make in the book is that um, the notion that Britons are a visual people, um, and this is true of other industrialized societies, but the notion that Britain is a, 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 a heavily visual culture and, and the ability to read visual imagery is very important. One of the things I argue is that the ability to read the male face and the body in that context is crucial. Um, and, and it becomes part of the ways in which Britons learn to be a visual people um, over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. In terms of the quote you read, um, a lot of what I talk about throughout the book are these different moments where Britons are encouraged to think about how they assess the attractive man. And in the context of the quote that you read, I think that's from the chapter on physiognomy and photography. Is that correct? So in the 19th century, physiognomy, which is this sort of um, quasi pseudo science, depending on who you're talking to, 
um, about reading faces to understand um, internal character. Um, uh, there's a new, uh, renewed emphasis. This is something that has existed for centuries um, as, a, as a way of seeing the world and as a way of understanding human appearance. But um, in the 18th century, it sort of resurfaces. And in the 19th century, physiognomy becomes highly popular um, in the sense that it appears in these popular pocket manuals that tell people how to read faces or tell people how to choose a mate, how to choose a spouse. Um, it also appears in a variety of different magazines. And one of the things that interested me was the way in which it appears and is used in physique magazines in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, magazines that were directed at um, young men and boys um, in sort of being encouraged to develop their bodies. There were all of these pieces in there about how one reads the face. Um, and that's where this comes from. So that one of the arguments I make in the book is that physiognomy um, as a, as a, in its sort of popularized 19th century form, physiognomy becomes a, 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 a crucial cornerstone, just as photography does in the creation of vocabularies of beauty. And it emphasizes this ability to assess any and every feature. Right. So my, 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 I like, I like what that you picked up on the eyes because there was, there were always these discussions about whether almond shaped eyes were attractive or not. And were they attractive on men or were they attractive on women or were they attractive on both? And people have hugely varying opinions about that. So you see these kinds of debates. Um, for men, um, chins were especially important. Um, so a chin that was too prominent was problematic. A chin that receded too much was also problematic. Um, you wanted a chin that was going to reveal a strong character um, and also uh, be sort of assessed as attractive or appealing, right? So chins had to appear in a certain way. And you sometimes see in discussions about whether men should wear beards or wear mustaches, um, those discussions often revolved around what kind of facial structure they had. So a beard could be a way of obscuring a receding chin, right? It could be a way of almost tricking the eye to get people to think that the person was, was more appealing or possessed a different kind of character than they, they, they might otherwise if they were clean shaven. Um, so there are all these kinds of discussions um, and you see them time and again and time and again. But what's really interesting in the project is the way in which these ideas kind of resurface. And I'll give you one example of this. So much later in the book, I think it's the chapter where I talk about teenage culture um, in the 1950s and 1960s. Magazines that were directed at teenage girls had features as well on how to assess different aspects of the male face. Right. And they were sort of instructed on how to determine who was attractive. And this was part of this kind of teenage celebrity culture that was emerging in the 50s and 60s. So there were um, pieces in one magazine that was called Boyfriend that started in 1959, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, Boyfriend had all of these features, one of which sticks out is, is, is about celebrities' eyes and how they had the ability to assess celebrities' eyes and to also determine which was most appealing. And a lot of this was about sort of emphasizing the acquisition of a certain kind of knowledge that would privilege sort of heterosexual longing for young women, right? So there was, there was a lot of that going on in these magazines. But it's really interesting to see those continuing into the 20th century. And you see it in other, other manifestations. And you know, that's one of the things that I like about, what I liked about writing this book I generally like the book because I wrote it, but what I, what, I, what I liked about writing the book was kind of dealing with this longer term perspective and understanding how certain developments kind of emerge, uh, disappear, and then reemerge. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's again, you know, it's so interesting, but one of the figures that really emerges in your book early on, and he kind of sets the definition of what masculine standards of beauty is, is Rupert Brooks. And he also happens to adorn the cover of your book. Um, so can you tell our listeners something about who he was and what his contribution to this very interesting study was? Yeah, that's a great a great question. Um, Rupert Brooke is one of my favorite figures in this book. And um, probably it has something to do with the huge um, archival record that has been assembled around him. Um, and I'll say why that is, but let me say a little bit about the cover for a minute. Um, in looking at or in making decisions about what would appear on the cover and the decisions are ultimately the press's decision, we had originally settled on a photograph by an artist named Henry Scott Toop, who did um, paintings in the late 19th and early 20th centuries of young men, usually nude um, in seaside settings. And there was a painting, a, a photograph that he had taken of two young men nude um, on a beach. Uh, and the, the, it's their backsides facing the camera, but it's on this beach. And we were originally thinking that that would be a, a good cover image. Um, but when the designer got to work, the designer happened upon this very famous portrait of Rupert Brooke, um, which was done by an American photographer named Cheryl Schell, um, who was working in London around 1913 when this, when this was done. Brooke, um, the reason the, the designer chose it was that Brooke's look in that, in that particular uh, image is very it's he's a very a classically handsome man but it's a very inviting um uh look and and he's almost staring at the the viewer or the reader and i think i think that's what they found compelling and i actually agreed with them in the end but let me say a little bit about who rupert brooke was and why he figures so prominently in the book rupert brooke is a very interesting young man um who was involved in um and some some of the listeners may well know Brooke's story, but was involved in various intellectual circles at Cambridge, and then um, uh, uh, sort of affiliated with the early with the Bloomsbury Group. Um, although he did fall out with them ultimately, um, Brooke made his name as a writer and particularly as a poet um, in as a very young man. <clears throat> when the war breaks out in nineteen and and by about nineteen thirteen, he has acquired a kind of celebrity status in part because of his work as a poet and because he um, traveled to North America and, and wrote um, about his travels and actually and around the world. Um, his writings became quite popular, um, but it was his poetry that he was most known for. And um, Brooke, like many young men, um, decides to join the war effort um, when the war breaks out in 1914. Um, and uh, by that time, he had acquired a reputation as the most beautiful man in England, and, and people routinely talked about him in these terms. He dies rather tragically on the way to the Dardanelles in 1915, and he dies of, a, of an infection. Um, he dies uh, just off a Greek island called Skyros, which is where he's buried. Um, <clears throat> that death will prompt... Um, a lot of mourning, and it will prompt a lot of memorialization of Brooke, and particularly the memorialization of his his physical form in in the form of of a medallion, a sculptural medallion, in the form of a statue on Skyros that gets erected in 1930-1931, um, but also in the press and in other contexts. And the reason Brooke is so important in the book is that. I, I see Brooke as this kind of um, critical figure. He represents both the apex of the aesthetic trends that develop over the course of the 19th century. So um, he is his, his, his whiteness, his muscularity, his um, attractive hair and face, his clean shavenness, um, his youthfulness. These are all hallmarks of British beauty, British male beauty by the early 20th century that have evolved 
through a variety of different cultural forms. And I talk about all those cultural forms in the chapter that leads up to Brooke. But Brooke also represents this really kind of modern figure because Brooke, as a, um, a sexual being, um, was, you know, in, in, in terms, in present day terms, was probably sort of pansexual um, in the sense that he had relations, um, he had relations and relationships with both men and women. He was the object of desire for both men and women. And he represents this kind of interesting sexual moment where fluidity between categories was, was, was quite common and um, particularly in the circle that he inhabited. Um, so I see him as both this sort of figure that represents the developments of the 19th century and then this kind of forward-looking modern figure. But the thing that's most important about Brooke from my perspective is that Brooke's beauty becomes this interesting kind of antidote to the crises of the First World War. So on the one hand, you and this chapter where I talk about Brooke has discussions of men who were physically disfigured, especially in facial terms, um, during the war. And he becomes this sort of beauty antidote to um, some of the horrors of the conflict. And in this way, I'm building on some of the work that other people have done about the First World War, which, as you know, has just a voluminous body of literature. But Brooke really does become this, this kind of important central figure. I see him as the person who kind of, you know, brings us literally um, because of the years he lives from the 19th and the 20th century, but also in terms of aesthetics and in terms of, of the way he represents a new form of celebrity that will actually develop in really profound ways through the film industry and a variety of other mechanisms over the course of the 20th century. So he kind of sets the standard. One, he sets the standard, and he's also sort of uh, the transition figure from 19th century as we move as cultural norms changes into the 20th century. He kind of personifies that transformation as well then, right? Absolutely. Wow. Um, so on the one hand, you know, you talk about Rupert Brooks uh, Brooke as being the figure that embodies a certain standards of beauty. Now, if we go past the two world wars and when Britain now is going through the process of, you know, population from the colonies coming, migrating into Britain, how does race then change the standards of beauty, say from Brooke to the 19th? 60s and 70s? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question and a very important question um, for the ways that I, I try to approach the book. Um, one of the things I realized in writing this book was that one can't write a history of beauty without also writing a history of race, right? And thinking about um, the racialization of beauty standards. And in the context of the 19th century, um, that appears in a variety of different places. So I talk about racial scientists and the ways in which racial scientists delineate hierarchies of beauty that are not going to be surprising to anyone, but very much important to um, the formation of beauty standards over the course of the 19th and into the early 20th centuries. Um, there's some really interesting examples from the book. For example, um, you know, I, I talk a little bit about the ways in which Indian men um, embrace the physical culture movement of the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries and try to compete on a stage that is similar to the white British men that they're they're sort of also engaging with. So there's there's that. But I think the story that you're you're talking about in the the mid to late 20th century is a very, very important story. And you're right to think of it in terms of the demographic shifts that are happening um, over the course of that period. Um, I have a couple of instances from the book that I think are important um, because I do think that, that over the span of the period from the 50s through the 80s and 90s, one sees a very dramatic shift um, in that you have men of color who are starting to assert two things. One, they're starting to assert that that their bodies and faces should be considered within this um, kind of panoply of what is attractive in Britain. But you also get really interesting instances of men who see 
access to male beauty culture in Britain as a prerogative of Britishness. And one of the best examples is uh, an article written by a West Indian man in the Times, um, right at the, at the turn of the 1950s into the early 1960s, in which he says, essentially, British barbers need to learn how to cut black hair. And they need to learn how to engage with us because we have the right, we have the prerogative to use their services. And he sees this, this engagement with this kind of world of body-oriented goods, but also with this kind of London, in this case, a London-based grooming culture, um, as, as, as a prerogative of these claims to Britishness that are, are really important. So I think you see these kinds of struggles, and I have lots of other instances in the book. Um, so I talk a little bit about controversies um, uh, around uh, Rastafari hair in um, the 1970s and 1980s. I have instances, and these are all instances in which men are asserting their right to be considered beautiful, but also to um, insert themselves into these traditions of beauty culture that are an important part of this sort of 20th century consumer world. Um, This is especially pronounced, I think, when I look at some of the work of art photographers in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and the ways in which they tried to subvert notions of, of, of white beauty um, through their photographic work. Um, and we see that in, in a variety of different places. So I try to try to kind of do that there. And I try to sort of show how there's this kind of profitable um, tension that results in aesthetic shifts. So by the time you get to the early 21st century, um, a growing recognition that the industry, the beauty industry, but also things like modeling and other areas of this sort of broad beauty industry need to recognize these forms of racial diversity. Um, It's always contentious and there's always sort of debates around it, but it's a very interesting element of the story that I try to tell throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And you have so many interesting instances and anecdotes of information that really opens your eyes to looking at these things so very differently than what we are used to doing. Um, So to kind of start to, you know, and again, the 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 um the time period that you cover the number of characters that you have is incredible so if you so if i could um ask you to kind of come up with some general ideas or themes so starting from brooke then you then all the way to beckham who you know you think who who is a you know, he was a footballer. You don't necessarily think of himself as fitting into a standard of male beauty. But from Brooke to Beckham to, um, is I don't know if I'm going to mispronounce his name, Gandhi, right? Um, so what what do you think has been the prevalent features of masculine British beauty that has emerged from Brooke all the way to Gandhi? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think I think there are a couple of things that are important within that. And one is, is I've already talked about the importance of, of muscularity and the, the role that muscularity plays. And, and it's a different form of muscularity in all three instances. Um, but it it is it is something that runs through all of those, all of those figures. And so I think I think that's kind of a crucial issue. I think the prevailing whiteness in definitions of British beauty are, is also important, right? So despite all of what I've said about these attempts to challenge and subvert, that, that dominant narrative of whiteness is actually one that, that I think we, we see in this book and we see it in, the, in those particular figures. I think what is interesting to me is that, you know, and again, I've talked about the ebb and flow of these different standards, but what's interesting to me in, in all three of those instances that you've just mentioned is the way in which they are able to, to varying degrees of sort of consciousness, um, they're able to commodify their attractiveness and they're able to turn that into a form of celebrity that 
is, I think, very distinctive um, and very important to consider in the 20th century, right? So that celebrity status is partly predicated not so much on, um, um, you know, in, in case of Beckham, in the case of Brooke, it's talent. Um, in the case of Gandhi, it's it's good looks, um, and it's and his ability and his, it's his talent as a model, um, and and his his uniqueness as a model. I think it becomes difficult to say that there's one set um, standard of attractiveness. So that you know, in the 19th century, you have you know portly men who are bearded, and in the 20th century, late 20th or early 21st century, you have. Um, men who are muscular, clean shaven, and um, who who become famous on the basis of their attractiveness, because those things kind of merge and intersect and get reinvented over time. Um, I do think the the sort of trends around athleticism and muscularity, the, the discussions of whiteness, the ways in which um, beauty becomes commodified over time. Those are the narratives that I'm especially interested in telling in the, in the story. Um, and I think there's a story here, um, although maybe not as pronounced as it might be, um, around social class and the ways in which beauty standards can be determined in part by social class. I think one of the things that's unique about the shift that occurs from Brooke to Gandhi and Beckham is that Brooke is an upper middle class public school Cambridge educated young man who represents a particular ideal and an ideal that actually you see carrying through. So if you look at the image of Brooke um, on that book, he does look a little bit like Hugh Grant when in his early days in the 1980s um, when he had very similar hair. And that sort of represented a particular class specific version of, of male beauty. I think in the case of Beckham and Gandhi, um, the, 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 the issues of class um, are, are, you know, they're a little submerged because they both are, you know, by virtue of their income and success, upper class men now, but relatively humble backgrounds. And, and I, think, I think that's maybe a bit of a shift that occurs so that you have these kinds of democratizations of beauty, this democratization of beauty standards that lead to new ways of thinking about what British male beauty is all about. Wow, that's fascinating to think about it like that. Um, so to talk about the research that went into this book, um, you know, the, the, the number of sources you have used is extensive, um, but I'm sure everything that you found in, your, in the archives or in your conversation with other historians probably unfortunately didn't make it into the book. Is there any research that you could not fit into the book that you would like to tell our listeners about? I think I was able to get a lot into the book and I was able to incorporate a, a wide range of, of material. I, I think that there are... Um, individual life stories that I would have liked to have spent more time discussing. And there are a couple of figures that I, I do, I do a lot on, on Rupert Brooke and he is, is central, but there are other figures. So um, there's this really interesting um, artist named Keith Vaughn, who kept multiple volumes of a journal from 1939 until his death in the 1970s. And I looked at a lot of those journals and I was able to include just a very small portion. And had I um, written a whole chapter on, on Vaughn, I could have um, produced a, 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 a perspective that would have fit in with what I say about the 40s, 50s and 60s, but um, that would have provided a kind of individual, um, uh, very focused mindset. The same holds true for a wonderful um, diary that was kept by a man named Johnny Black um, and that I write about it from the 1970s, which is in the Mass Observation Archive. Again, because he talks so much about his appearance and how other, others view him, um, I really would have loved to have spent more time with that. And he and I have corresponded via email. He's, he's a really interesting guy who had a, a fascinating career as a 
rock musician publicist and did all sorts of other things. So his life story, there were all these life stories that emerged. I'll give one other example. Um, in I, I, one of the one of the archival repositories I use extensively is the Mass Observation Archive, which is at the University of Sussex. And I use both the Mass Observation Archive from the 30s and 40s and then the material um, from uh, the 80s, 90s and early 2000s. And in the 1930s, I ran across a case in um, one of the uh, responses to a directive on personal appearance of a, a young person, a person who identifies um, without using the, these terms as transgender. And it's a really interesting case because they talk about themselves as biologically female, psychologically male, and they talk about their engagement with male beauty culture in um, in the city of London in particular um, in this late 1930s, early 1940s period. I would love to trace that person's life through these directives if they're actually out there. Um, so there are little little snippets like that that really fascinated me and that really got me um, inspired. And then, um, you know, I would follow the research path and spend a lot of time looking at, for example, the Keith Vaughn journals. And then... Um, you know, when I got down to writing the book and producing the book, realizing I only had a very limited space to talk about <laughs> that work. So that's, that's, those are some examples. Wow. Any upcoming projects? I mean, your book, this book, uh, Male Beauty only came out in 21. Any mm -hmm. upcoming projects you want to tell our listeners about? That, yeah, the book just came out right at the end of 2021. Curiously, stalled by um, the supply chain issues that we've all been facing, uh, paper shortages. But um, yes, I am, I am actually switching gears a little bit for my next book project. I'm completing a multi-volume um, cultural history of beauty, which is um, I'm, I'm just the series editor and a volume editor. But my next major project is going to look at something quite different. Um, I'm going to look at architecture, <laughs> curiously enough. And what I'm what I'm especially interested in um, the the tentative title is called um, transatlantic Britishness um, architecture design and cultural exchange um, uh, between 1876 and the present. And what I'm really interested in is the American investment in Britishness through design and architecture. And what got me especially uh, interested and inspired was. Um, this tendency on the part usually of wealthy Americans um, from the late 19th and early 20th centuries to actually buy up British buildings and move them wholesale across the Atlantic and then reconstruct them. Um, there are many examples of this around, around the world. Most of them um, take on the form of a state. So they take country houses from Britain and then move them across the Atlantic. But what I realized is that there's this kind of larger project there about the American investment in Britishness that um, I'm going to write about. So um, we'll see how it goes. It's very early days. I'm just getting started. I don't really know what direction I'll take. Like, like with the male beauty book, I didn't know what direction it was going to take. Um, but what unifies, I think, um, that book or unites that book with the beauty book is, is this interest, this continued interest in aesthetics and investment in beauty. And um, that's kind of, those are, those are the ways I like to sell it as a kind of point of overlap, I guess, between the two projects. Wow. Well, we wish you all the best. And, you know, I can't wait to interview you in some years on that book. But we also are going to interview you at some point over the summer, time permitting, on Oxbridge Men. And I'm excited to talk to you about that. Um, thank you so much, Paul, for joining us on New Books Network in British Studies today. Uh, for listeners out there, if this interview has piqued your interest in this brilliant uh, book, you can pick up a copy of Paul Delan's book, The Culture of Male, Male Beauty in Britain, directly from Chicago University Press website or your local bookstore. Thank you so much for listening to us today.